Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of The Young Jerks Live. It's 5 p.m. on Monday, April the 13th. I'm your host, Grant Smith-Ellis. I'm uh, here uh, hosting this evening. Uh, normally, The Young Jerks would be hosted by Mike Crawford, but I've been given the honor and the opportunity to host this special episode tonight with two guests who I think I uh, could not be more excited to interview. I've personally been looking forward to this for multiple weeks at this point, as I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. So um, folks may be aware that tonight we have with us uh, Cannabis Control Commissioner Shaleen Title and Massachusetts State Rep China Tyler. And before we begin our conversation, I'm going to give each of the guests an opportunity to introduce themselves to uh, those of our viewers who may not know them. And I know Commissioner Title is returning to the program, but Rep. Tyler, this is your first visit with us. So please, by all means, um, Rep. Tyler, uh, we'd love to, to hear a little bit about yourself and the work you do as a representative. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd like to say hello to Commissioner Title. So glad to see you over Zoom. Haven't seen anybody in weeks, so it's so great to see my colleagues um, in government. Um, so for those that don't know me, most do. Um, my name is China Tyler. I represent the 7th Suffolk District here in Boston, Massachusetts at uh, the State House on Beacon Hill. Um, and I happen to have the super honor to also chair the Boston delegation and to also be the vice chair of the Public Health Committee. A um, little bit about me, born and raised here in Massachusetts, born, raised, and educated here, um, here right here in Boston. Um, when I became a rep, I was just 26 years old when I decided to jump into a race. Um, I wasn't politically savvy, uh, to say the least. Um, however, I know that there were a ton of voids that my community um, continued to express concerns about, and those voids just weren't being filled. And I'm very, very passionate about you know, my community because it gave me everything I, I needed to be able to be where I am today. And I wanted to deliver that for the next generation um, and for generations to come. And so I had jumped in, ended up running a race, and now I am happy enough to serve in the legislature. I'm in my second term. Um, and I look forward to continuing to send it to serving and um, just uh, finalize my situation to actually be on a ballot uh, for this year, this year's election. So I will be serving again next year, um, hopefully having no opponents. So thank you so much for asking that question. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. And that's really such an awesome story. And I, I'm sure we'll get some more details of your path from uh, the campaign through to the work you've done uh, as we continue the discussion. Uh, but Commissioner Title, if you'd like to give an introduction, if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, it's great to be back. Grant, um, I appreciate you having me on again. Um, great to see you, Rep. Tyler. I'm a big fan of both of you and how both of you do your work. Um, if anyone doesn't know me, my name is Shaleen. Uh, I've been a commissioner with the Cannabis Control Commission since 2017. Before that, I was an activist and an entrepreneur um, with a staffing company focused on diversity and inclusion in the marijuana industry. Um, I was also an attorney helping businesses, uh, particularly trying to help small businesses start marijuana companies. And um, I've worked on several uh, marijuana-related elections and campaigns um, since college, so 15 years now. Nice. You both have such a in-depth perspective on 
regulation and lawmaking. It's it's really an honor to be able to to be with both of you today and for our viewers uh, who may be uh, very interested in the politics of cannabis in the Commonwealth, the politics of equity in the Commonwealth, um, this is really going to be an awesome discussion. So thank you both so much for those intros. And I have uh, some questions that uh, kind of are like a research paper. So I'm grateful you both were willing to take the time to answer them. Um, but yeah, um, it's very interesting because for those folks who follow the cannabis scene closely in Massachusetts, they'll know that today was actually a pretty big news day, uh, completely coincidentally with the airing of the episode. Although there always seems to be a big news day in the local cannabis community <laughs> as of late. Uh, but in particular, Commissioner Title, one of your colleagues, um, Kay Doyle, um, who has been a commissioner for many years with you, uh, made an announcement today that she'll be stepping down uh, as of May 8th. I saw the commission uh, put out a very nice uh, press release where some of her colleagues, including yourself, said some very nice things about the excellent work Commissioner Doyle has done. Um, so uh, would, is there anything you'd like to say about that announcement that came out today? Sure, yeah. So um, people can take a look at the news release on our website. Um, but I'm really going to miss Commissioner Doyle. She's been fantastic. She was the other marijuana expert because she was at DPH working on medical cannabis before she came here. Um, and she just has a regulator's mind. Um, she's very good at seeing a problem and knowing how to fix it. I did a Twitter thread earlier with some of my favorite highlights of um, things that she's done. She's the reason that we have what we call an expedition policy. So if you've seen a lot more micro businesses, co-ops, um, social equity program participants, minority women veteran owned businesses coming through recently, that's because of the change that she made. She also almost single-handedly did all of the energy and environmental related work for Massachusetts, which we're a leader in. Um, and she was a tie-breaking vote on um, social consumption, which is a really big deal for me. So we will miss her. I'm really, really, really excited to see who the new commissioner is. Like that's obviously a very big deal for all of us. Um, because I've been getting a lot of inquiries all day, let me just note, I have no say in that selection process. I'm as antsy about it as you are. Um, her seat is for someone with an expertise in um, regulated industries. And it is appointed jointly by Governor Baker, Attorney General Healy, and Treasurer Goldberg. So if you have thoughts about who you want to be appointed, those are the three offices to contact. And I'm, thank you so much for bringing up sort of the nitty gritty of that appointment process, because I think a lot of people in particular in the cannabis community were starting to talk about that today. Now, I know the term uh, for actually yourself and Commissioner Doyle was scheduled to end in August. Um, now, this uh, Commissioner Doyle stepping down in May, does that affect you as a commission operationally, or does it affect the uh, way the appointment happens in terms of the calendar? Do you have any insight there, at least? Yeah, so the way the terms work are, uh, it's staggered. So she and I have our terms ending in September, and then um, Commissioners Flanagan and McBride end a year later, and then Chairman Hoffman a year after that and then the five-year terms thereafter because they didn't want us all to leave at once. So um, for now, you need three commissioners for a quorum. So I don't know if there will be any period of time where we'll only have four, but if that's the case, we can still operate. 
The only thing is that um, if we had a two to two vote, I don't know what ha would happen in that case, but um, we can still function for as long as we need to. Um, well, thank you so much for that uh, context and explanation. Um, Rep. Tyler, I had uh, another question for you, uh, not directly on that topic, but if there's anything you want to weigh in on about that, please don't let me stop you uh, after I ask this question. So, um, so for those of uh, our viewers who might not be familiar with your story, Rep. Tyler, you, um, you told us a little bit earlier in your introduction about uh, your path to office and your time in the State House. But as part of your campaign and your time in office, what are the policy issues that you've kind of been focusing on as, as your sort of uh, areas of expertise, so to speak? Yeah, so I'll reverse a little bit. So I actually um, graduated from Northeastern University in 2011 as a criminal justice and law policy and society major. Um, and so one of my, you know, my first career paths was into um, the prison system and working for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, um, helping inmates get employment, housing, and most importantly, community support. And it was through that opportunity where I saw, you know, um, the big inequities when it comes to government funding. Um, I knew in, my, in the back of my mind, again, being fresh out of college, that there was hundreds of thousands of dollars out there, even more than that, that was allocated to communities like mine and to communities like the, like the prison community or the post-release and pre-release community that I worked in. Um, however, when I dealt with the individuals that I was working with, it was very, very hard to be able to get them access to resources. And so that's kind of what opened up my mind and opened up Pandora's box into government for me. Um, and so I actually ended up working in the state house as an aide for a while. Um, and I was, and I really, really saw like the mismatch between like what communities need and what communities, you know, you know, what their needs and what their, what their voids were and how those resources were being kind of misallocated. And so I kind of ramped it up a little bit. I went corporate a little bit because I had a daughter when I was a, a junior in college. And so I couldn't um, work a public service job getting paid, not the most amount of money and, you know, be also be a parent. So I went corporate for a little bit. Um, and then I kind of re-diverged back into um, the public um, realm where I actually ran for office. And that was a story kind of picking up when I was 26 years old. And so you talk about like issue topics. Um, when I was running my campaign and when I was on the campaign trail, for me, I let, I let my community dictate what my what my platform was going to be. I didn't, I don't like to push things on people. You tell me what you want to see. And it is my job to really uplift your voice from there. So some of the things that I've heard about from my community, which you can kind of see on my website and do and through all the things that I kind of fight and advocate for are things like um, public health, elder affairs, um, education, which you just passed a really, really huge education reform bill, the Student Opportunity Act, and a lot of the bills that I had um, was actually rolled into the, the final version of that. Um, prison reform, which is really, really huge for me. Um, and also um, cannabis related industry things. Um, I do have some bills that are, you know, focused on the cannabis industry. Um, one of them is focused around, you know, automatically expunging records. Um, I do know that folks have an opportunity to expunge their record, um, but they have to actually take action and go to a courthouse. Um, and that process is really, really tedious. And it's a very, very difficult process um, for, for most folks to navigate just from hearing firsthand experience um, folks that let me know, constituents that let me know what their process was. Um, and I was kind of really bothered by that. So I've tried to put forth a bill to be able to allow for folks that 
you know, have records um, under that realm to be automatically expunged. Um, and second, when it comes to um, the cannabis industry in general, which I know this issue topic or this interview is around um, not allowing for employers to test uh, for cannabis should someone want to, you know, go on to a job and um, interview for a job and try to make it through the hiring process. Again, if it's legal and we already have it regulated, there are a lot of folks that are prevented from actually joining the workforce because of marijuana and they shouldn't be um, able to, they shouldn't be stopped from doing so. So hopefully we can see those two bills through. They're going through the legislative process right now. Um, it's their first new, newly introduced bill. So a lot of kinks that have to be tweaked out, but I'm glad to be able to make sure that, you know, I'm ushering it through the legislative process. Um, so those are a couple issue topics that I'm focused on. Well, that's absolutely wonderful, in particular about uh, the expungement and the uh, ensuring that uh, um, employers cannot uh, disqualify uh, applicants for using legal cannabis in the Commonwealth. Uh, it, it's wonderful you bring them up. Our viewers will remember uh, that uh, uh, the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council, who have uh, had representatives appear on this show a few times, have talked a lot about um, expungement, and they uh, have brought that to our community's attention on multiple occasions. So a huge credit to you for uh, the legwork and for all the activists who have been keeping that expungement bill uh, in the center of the conversation. And then on the uh, recre on the adult use um, testing, that is really so important because folks might be aware that there's actually an SJC decision that protects medical patients from employment discrimination on the basis of a positive cannabis test. But there is no such law. And it was actually on this program, uh, no such law for adult use uh, consumers. And it was actually on this program about two years ago that Senator Jason Lewis, who I'm sure you may have talked with about this, brought up that idea. So I'm very glad to hear that yourself and others have been working on that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Title, before I uh, jump on to another question, is there anything about uh, expungement uh, or um, the uh, uh, pre-employment testing for adult use that you wanted to weigh in on? Uh, just that I completely support those issues, and I really um, I commend Representative Tyler for her leadership on it, and I commend this show for asking Senator Lewis. I find that with those two issues, it's hard to find people who disagree, right, because there, it's just so obvious that you should be able to expunge your records and that you shouldn't discriminate against people for legal use, but it's a matter of how motivated they are to show leadership on them. So I think it's something where you can be successful if you really press um, your elected officials on. Wonderful. And Rep. Tyler, before I forget, uh, for folks who might be interested in learning more about these bills on uh, expungement uh, or um, pre-employment testing for recreational consumers, is there anywhere they can go to find out uh, more information about those bills? Yeah, absolutely. If you just Google me on my legislature uh, website page or kind of page, all the information is there. And if you want a kind of more simpler version as to what does this policy actually mean, you can just call my office and I'm happy to walk anyone through any of the policy that they see that they're interested in. So absolutely. That's wonderful. And she has a great newsletter. We should sign yeah, up. Yeah, newsletter, yeah. I actually have a newsletter that comes out. Well, it's coming out every week now due to the COVID-19 situation. Just making sure folks don't get misinformation and that they're actually getting the facts. Um, but it's supposed, it comes out quarterly on that and it shares a lot of information around um, where it builds on the process. So um, feel free to reach out, email, call. I'm available, I'm here, so. How can folks sign up for that newsletter? Um, so if you just send me an email, um, I'll, I'll be happy to add folks on to the email list. 
that's a very cool concept, and I hope folks take advantage of that because there's nothing more empowering in the democratic process than being informed directly by your lawmakers and representatives and regulators about the issues that they're facing because cutting out that middleman breaks down any potential for misinformation as you were talking about, so it's so crucial. So thank you for providing that service. Yeah. Um, Commissioner Title, I, I have a question for you uh, on a cannabis policy issue, actually, uh, that I think some other folks um, in the cannabis community probably were following quite closely this past week. Uh, so last week, the Cannabis Control Commission had uh, one of its regular hearings, uh, although it was held digitally, and licenses were approved and some were tabled or not voted on for the time being. And one of those licenses that was tabled by a three to two vote um, was related to a concern regarding previous controlling relationships that the company involved may have signed with larger corporate cannabis companies. Again, this is a discussion that took place at a public meeting and I'm, I'm just rehashing it. For folks who have may, may have been confused about why that decision was taken and the nature of the discussion involving the tabling of that license, can you explain a little bit about why the commission takes steps to ensure applicants do not have undisclosed contracts with third-party companies that in effect give control of their licenses to those larger companies? Yeah, yeah, and this is a good segue from what we were just talking about, about being informed, because it is a really great thing about this commission <clears throat> that we have to make all of our decisions in public. And so you can watch the discussion um, and you can look at the materials online. And um, especially on this topic, I always make sure to speak as clearly as possible, as plainly as I'm speaking now in the meeting, because I think it's important that people should be able to follow this. Um, ownership and control is so important in Massachusetts. So we have a law that says, simply put, um, an entity can't own or control more than three of each license type. And that's because we don't want to have domination or exploitation of this market by any one company or entity. So um, we've been talking about this since back in the beginning. Um, I used to work in the cannabis industry, as I mentioned, Commissioner Doyle worked at DPH. Um, originally under the medical program, you had to be a nonprofit. And so management agreements are not something new. Management agreements are something that we've seen since the beginning. Um, and we've had these regulations where you can't um, own or control more than a certain number of entities. And we also have rules about disclosing those relationships. So what happened last week is we had what we call a case of first impression, which is when we have to make a decision for something that we've seen the first time. And what we were looking at was um, to put it as, as simply as possible, but I encourage you to watch the meeting for all the details. Um, the licensee had an application looked at in February where there were questions about the controlling relationships and there were questions about the disclosure of those controlling relationships. The opinion that we got as of last week was that the license had not, the application had not moved forward, the contracts had been changed. So in some cases, entire contract wasn't was terminated in other cases the contract was revised and the opinion that we got was there is no longer a controlling relationship here but 
the recommendation, there was no recommendation as to what the commission should do next. That was up to the commissioners because it's a case of first impression. So what I said in the meeting was, regardless of whether there is control or not presently, I'm not comfortable moving forward until the issues from before have been addressed. And I'm particularly thinking about whether our decisions are incentivizing or disincentivizing other companies from doing something similar and the resources that our commission is spending to untangle all of these relationships and go back and forth with the applicant. And so um, with those concerns in mind, we decided not to vote last week, but rather to have the staff look again um, and we want to make sure we're acting in a way that's fair we're acting in a way where other applicants that are watching can understand why we're making the decisions that we are um, and so we will come back to these these applications once those questions have been addressed well excellent thank you so much for that in-depth in explanation and i'm sure so many of the viewers are going to be grateful because i cannot uh, tell you the number of discussions i've had with folks this week who have been overwhelmingly, uh, I don't even know how to put this, but uh, overwhelmingly jaded by what they feel as inaction in some cases as to these ownership agreements. So to see something like the commission taking the decision to actually go back and look at this uh, application again, I hope will give some solace to those who have been worried about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll say with this issue, this is probably the issue where there's more um, misinformation and mistaken assumptions than any other issue. Um, and it's been like that for um, probably about a year. Uh, and people will very often tell me with confidence that there have, that there have been companies that have gone over the ownership and control limits. And I will say, which one and which meeting? And how do you know that? And it's just an idea that's out there, you know, and they're, they're never able to answer the question. So I appreciate you asking me that. I really do encourage people to watch the meeting. Um, if you are interested also, um, there's a very good article in the Boston Business Journal about last week's decision that puts it all in context um, that people might want to check out too. Wonderful. And uh, Rep. Tyler, uh, on this ownership and control issue, please, if you have anything, uh, by all means. Uh, um, so I think the commissioner answered the question uh, perfect. I just wanted to add on that you know, I just wanted to thank the commissioner for being very thorough um, when it comes to running these meetings and just kind of chiming in and using her platform to make sure that we're very thorough. This is a brand new industry and we have to do everything we can to make sure that it is strong every step of the way. And so we can't afford any missteps. So I just wanted to say, I appreciate what you're doing. Well, it really is so important. And in particular, like we were talking about, informed and cogent public discourse is what keeps everyone in the process honest. And so as we talk about these issues in the context of what regulators are doing and what lawmakers are doing, that circles back again through to the public. And like Commissioner Title was talking about, discussing these issues from the source in a way that keeps people informed is how we can work for, as we go forward to make sure that our rules can adapt or uh, be adjusted if uh, things are not able to effectively hold people to account. So thank you both very much for, for weighing in there. Um, changing topic a little bit, because I, I, I did kind of want to vary it up. Um, so folks are probably wondering, uh, you know, you guys 
both have very, uh, you, you uh, wonderful ladies, both have wonderful jobs uh, in the public sector, and uh, one of you works as a cannabis control commissioner, one of you works as a lawmaker. How is the current pandemic impacting your day-to-day -day workflow for folks who might not know too much about how it's uh, affecting that? Either one. I'll go. I'll go. Um, I think that, uh, again, we have never experienced something like this. So my day-to-day -day operations are probably more busier now than what I've ever experienced as a rep. Um, and to be completely honest with you, um, it really, this pandemic has really magnified the inequities that I fight for um, and that my constituents are kind of pushed down um, under. So for example, we've learned that not every student has access to a computer. Um, and that's the reason why our, Boston, our Mayor Walsh in the city of Boston had to ensure that all our students have computers. There's a big, you know, drive going on right now to ensure that we get every student in the city of Boston um, a laptop. Um, I talk about inequities. For example, my district is predominantly um, minority, and Black and Latino people make up 35% of the COVID, COVID cases. Um, and so, when you talk about inequities, when it comes to this issue topic. Um, I have to make sure that I am not only going backwards and focusing on kind of what brought us here, but to be able to pinpoint and highlight what can we do moving forward so that when it comes, should we have a situation like this in, in, in the future that our people aren't, my constituents aren't farther, further mar marginalized. Um, and so it just, it just takes a lot of true teamwork and communication to be able to get anything done. Um, and I think that, you know, people in my district I know have been less likely to receive resources straight from the government or, you know, if the government says, hey, we're going to give out $10 for this, whatever it is, by the time it gets to the everyday people, it may not be that full $10. It'll be a super fraction of what was set out to be. So it's my job to make sure that um, what we're highlighting here, um, we address the issue topic and moving forward, what we can do to be able to make sure that we're not in the same space again, should we happen to have another pandemic. I'm God forbid. So. Well, it's great to hear that uh, your office and I'm sure many of your colleagues have gone into overdrive mode for your constituents. And although these systemic barriers are no doubt uh, present and obviously being amplified now more than ever, it's okay. because of the work like uh, because of the work folks like yourself are doing that we even stand a chance of being able to break some of them down. So, right. And so also too, like before we get even talking about like the bigger overarching topics and, and issues, we're suffering, my district is suffering from a huge um, situation around food insecurity. And so we have organizations and, and food pantries making sure that folks have um, simple everyday things like food. And so folks are really suffering a great deal. And so although I like to uh, quarantine and be in the home, I'm usually out a lot of the times volunteering and making sure that folks have what they need because that's very, very important to me. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much. Commissioner Title. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to be um, a legislator right now, you know, with all of the, um, the pressure that's on you. But I think uh, not just you, but the whole legislature, as I've seen, is handling this um, very, very gracefully. Um, I have it pretty easy in contrast because um, obviously our, our scope is a lot narrower. Um, our commission had actually invested very heavily in technology um, and remote technology before this. So we were able to make a relatively smooth transition to working from home. Um, the inspections are the big issue, especially because our inspectors 
use personal protective equipment. So we are trying to figure that out as best we can, but um, the work has continued. We uh, actually issued 40 licenses last week, um, which was unusually high um, because we really understand that this is life or death for our, our uh, licensees and applicants. So we're moving forward. Um, we have made uh, a lot of bold moves, like kind of unusually bold moves for the commission, which has been great to see because we want to take care of patients, workers, small businesses. So we are allowing um, patient certification to take place remotely now, uh, especially so we can address people who weren't patients before who now can't access the adult use market. We've also amended our cease and desist order um, under interpreting the governor's order so that adult use businesses can contribute to the medical supply chain. And I, then we're just trying to make sure whatever small things we can do to help the adult use businesses, um, we're trying at our last meeting, Commissioner McBride had the idea to write a letter to our congressional delegation asking that those businesses be included in any COVID-19 relief funds. Um, the chairman is also in discussion with the legislature um, and we're trying to, you know, licensing fees and, and that sort of thing, they're, they're very small, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but we're still taking all those steps that we can for whatever really possible. Two very important points you bring up there. Uh, thank you so much for, for that um, and those two points. One being, so for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, recently the federal government uh, passed a stimulus, uh, which is resulting in, among other things, checks being dispersed to Americans. There's a small business loan fund. But unfortunately, that uh, federal program that passed a few weeks ago in, uh, specifically excludes cannabis businesses on the federal level. Uh, so what Commissioner Title was talking a little bit about there is the potential on the state level for some kind of relief. And um, I'm actually wondering, uh, Rep. Tyler, if you've heard anything about discussions surrounding potential economic relief for cannabis businesses in that context on the state level. Yeah, so um, again, the issue topic or just COVID-19 that we're facing today is a very, very difficult issue topic. One that it's we've never experienced anything like this before. And we're used to seeing each other and being able to come to the legislature and be together to have discussions, have hearings, vote together, um, and just be kind of do things in person. So you're talking about shifting our entire mechanism of like doing things over to something different. And so that issue topic is definitely on the table, but we're trying to figure out right now how we actually can convene and actually have the legislature rolling. So we're getting there. I'm working really, really hard to get there. So we are organized. Um, we do meet very often um, and we are in constant communication. We have every, everyone pretty much have every, everyone's number. So um, trying to just figure out how we can um, continue um, regular sessions per usual. So difficult, well, but we're going to get it done. <laughs> well, well, thank you for that. And uh, Commissioner Title, one more follow up on something you had been talking about, which was was this very innovative, uh, I thought, proposal that the commission uh, did to amend its cease and desist order for adult use businesses to allow for transference under specific circumstances of those products or cultivation uh, material to the medical supply chain. So one question that came up a lot uh, that folks were asking me over the past day or so was, okay, so say you're a micro business with your provisional license right now and you're going through the process, you obtain your final license while the emergency cease and desist is still in effect. 
under the program the commission is structuring for allowing those adult use businesses to uh, get their product into the medical supply chain would a micro business of that nature uh, while the cease and desist is still in effect be able to designate seeds and to get in the ground for adult use purposes or or how would that work um so i'm hesitant to um be too uh broad when I'm talking about our licensees because they really need to read the order. Um, and I would say if you are a micro business in that position, you can contact me directly. Um, my email address shaleen.title at cccmass.com um, and I'll get you the answer if you're confused. But uh, with all of that as a disclaimer, um, we are allowing adult use licensees to, I think the word we used was um, to make new cultivation plantings um with the understanding that it would be for the medical supply chain um, but there are a lot of caveats to that so just contact me well wonderful and and sorry to to spring that question uh, but it uh, definitely is something that's been on folks minds so for those of you who might be in that position although i can't imagine who, who that might be for anyone who might be in that position, uh, Commissioner Title was kind enough to uh, let you know you can reach out directly, as she so often does, uh, in the typification of what makes her such a unique uh, asset as a regulator. I don't know any other regulator who's given out their personal cell phone number during a live CCC hearing to help folks. So kudos uh, to yourself on that, uh, Commissioner Title. Oh, and can I repeat why that was just in case you have you have viewers. So if you have viewers who are workers, um, I gave out my number at that meeting last Thursday because I want to make sure that if you feel that you are in an unsafe situation, um, if you're seeing what you think are public health risks, if you're being asked to go to work um, and you don't think that you're an essential worker, you can make a complaint anonymously to the commission or you can call me directly. And there are laws that protect um, workers who make reports about about public health risks. Well, that is absolutely very important. I believe we have a question about that, uh, so I won't jump too far ahead, but uh, to, to reinforce that topic of those of you who might be listening that are employees in the cannabis industry, your safety is something that uh, your, your state regulators take into account. So please do not feel you have no allies. And uh, as Commissioner Title said, always reach out if, uh, if you feel that you're at risk. So thank you for that. Um, I uh, actually have probably the question that more folks are waiting to hear about than any other, because I've been following the comments and almost everyone has been asking for some kind of update on the state of adult use uh, cannabis in Massachusetts. So. The question I have to start the discussion, feel free to take it in any direction you want, is thus. So as you're both aware, adult use cannabis is currently shut down in Massachusetts, although uh, as we just talked about, there are slowly, uh, there are some exceptions that have been developed, for example, designating product for transfer to the medical market in recent weeks. Rev. Tyler, you proposed an amendment to a recent bill, I think it was H4580, that would have reopened that recreational market. And Commissioner Title, you recently signed on to a public letter calling on the governor to reverse course on his stance related to adult use cannabis. Can you each explain a little bit about why you feel it's important for adult use cannabis businesses to continue operations in the Commonwealth even during the state of emergency? Yeah. Okay. I'll go. So again, we have we have a brand new industry, and this is an opportunity for us to be able to be really, really innovative 
um, and to do some really cool things and to try some new things that we haven't tried before. I can tell you in my lifetime, I do not know when I had an opportunity to be able to work on strengthening a brand new industry. So this is a true opportunity for me um, and for my district. Um, and so we have a duty to make sure again that this industry is strong at all times. Um, and the people of the Commonwealth, particularly our veterans and in my community, overwhelmingly voted to be able to legalize the adult use of cannabis. Um, and they did so because they have a history of PSTD, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, depression, anxiety. And so for mental and physical health reasons, they deserve to have access to those outlets. And I'm going to continue to try to see what we can do to be able to create that access to out that, that outlet for them. So that's really so crucial and for folks uh, who may not have been following this uh, issue too closely there are so many individuals in the commonwealth who use cannabis for medicinal purposes that don't have a medical card and they uh, may be someone who can't afford the fee to go see a doctor for their initial prescription they may be someone who doesn't want to be on a list due to their federal benefits which is why, as a quick note, uh, Stephen Mandilli proposed uh, H4274, which would allow uh, veterans to access uh, cannabis uh, medical certifications without getting a recommendation from a doctor, instead using just their VA paperwork. Uh, but the point stands, which is that really that access to those who may not have access to a medical card is so crucial for PTSD and so many other conditions that may go untreated or worse may go treated with a substance that is a lot more dangerous than cannabis without that access. Yeah. Uh, um, even worse, um, access something on, on the black market that may not be tested or we don't know what it is and then they, that can lead to further um, health issues. So you're absolutely right. That is very true. And um, as we know, uh, during the vape crisis that now seems like it was four years ago at the pace of developments these days, um, a lot of these studies done ex post facto into the use of uh, cannabis products it, among those who had lung injuries were found to have been obtained through illicit uh, uh, services. So it is very much the case that closing down the adult use market does in effect pose that kind of health risk. So thank you for bringing that uh, important point up as well. Um, Commissioner Title. Yeah, so that's the primary reason for me as well is there are so many people who didn't register because they're not comfortable registering or because they don't have the $200, you know, that it takes and it used to be more we used to have a $50 patient fee. Thankfully, we've waived that but it's still there's still a barrier to become a patient. And, uh, and of course, some people might just not qualify, you know, to be patients. And so I support reopening adult use for that reason. But this is different from the vape ban in that the vape ban was not at all based, justified by anything based in reality. Whereas in this case, we do have legitimate health and safety concerns. And of course those come first. So I've said before that um, I think the same measures that we're using in the medical industry could be used in the adult use industry, uh, particularly curbside pickup um, we'll have delivery applications available next month. I don't know how long that will take, but we will have delivery eventually. And of course, there are um, sanitation measures for workers that all essential workers are using. Although I did say at our last meeting, if I get a lot of calls from workers and I'm doubting that you know adult use can be brought back safely, I'm not going to support it anymore. But luckily, so far, I, I continue to believe that. Um, I also 
there was a really great letter. So Representative Tyler wrote an excellent letter to the governor. Um, and then all of these other letters came out. There was one from industry groups. There was one from the cannabis committee co-chairs, um, Senator Shang Diaz and Representative Rogers. And they said in their letter, we're asking, we are having constituents ask us how can liquor stores be open and not cannabis dispensaries. And they said, we can't look them in the eye and explain this unequal treatment. And that is so true. There's a real equity issue between those two. And we just need common sense uh, ways of approaching this. And every other state that has adult use cannabis has not shut down their adult use stores. Yeah, we just want them to be treated in a parallel manner, to be totally honest. And um, right now we don't have an answer for them. And so we worry about their, their mental health and their physical health at this point. Such, such important points all around. And I think that the cannabis community, although it sometimes is fractured along ideological lines, along business versus non-business lines, along activist versus uh, lobbyist lines, is pretty united on this issue in a what's good for the goose is good for the gander kind of way. And yes, I did intentionally use that phrase because of how much I like saying it. So, <laughs> even I know that uh, industry partners had put together um, a website and to 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 create a sign-on letter to support this very issue topic. And I know the first day the portal kind of broke, it kind of shut down. So that just shows you in numbers like the urgency behind this issue topic. It is something that everybody in the industry is concerned about, and hopefully um, we can come up with a solution pretty soon. Um, I have something to share on this. So there is a lawsuit from some um, industry associations or operators or both um, to have stores reopen. And they have their first hearing on um, the preliminary injunction motion tomorrow. And our legal team, our wonderful legal team has sent us the information if you want to watch or listen to it. Uh, it's at 2 o'clock tomorrow, um, April 14th. And you can go to youtube.com and you can search for Comcan Inc. versus Baker preliminary injunction hearing, and then you can watch it. Oh, Commissioner Title, that is so wonderful. I've had multiple people come up to me uh, online over the past few days asking, are we going to be able to dial into this hearing? Are we going to be able to watch it? So for those of you who are wondering, uh, I didn't even have to ask the question. Commissioner Title read your minds and uh, has let you know that you can search Comcan Inc. vs. Baker preliminary injunction hearing on YouTube, and that airs tomorrow, which is Tuesday the 14th at what time? 2 o'clock. 2 p.m. So for those of you who want to watch that hearing, uh, one of the plaintiffs is Stephen Mandilli, a local veteran uh, who is one of those people that uses cannabis medicinally but does not have a medical card. And for that reason, uh, the suit is actually fascinating. I don't know if either of you have had a chance to read the brief, um, but I've actually, I, I read the brief and they make a very interesting equal protection argument. And so um, I, I don't wanna put either of you on the spot, but from my perspective, it's very interesting to think about whether there's a rational basis to treat um, consumers of cannabis for medical purposes different than consumers of cannabis for medical purposes with a card. So that was my thought while reading it, but as I, uh, we didn't prepare to, to talk about uh, the specifics of the brief, I will not ask either of you to weigh in if you don't want to, so. 
Uh, I would weigh in on um, actually a different part of it. I do think it's very interesting and unexpected that the governor gave such very specific reasoning where he said his concern and his only concern was people from out of state coming to the adult use dispensaries, which I think is a totally justified concern. But then when asked um, why we can't just restrict sales to Massachusetts residents when we already ID them, um, he said, I don't know if that's legal. Um, and then when he was asked again, he just snapped uh, the other day. Um, I think there's a very convincing and strong argument that we can, as a state, restrict sales for Massachusetts residents during a health emergency. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. Certainly, certainly. And I think that that issue is so interesting uh, because um, other states, I believe, uh, have who have kept uh, recreational and medical open, at least two of them, only allow in-state uh, adult use consumers. Um, and I will try to find out what those states are and leave it in a comment after the video as it's escaping me right now. Um, so switching gears a little bit, although uh, that is a very important case, so thank you for bringing that up. One topic that I really wanted to touch on today uh, is, is equity. And uh, Commissioner Title, I'll direct this to you first, but Rep Tyler, please weigh in at any time. Um, so, Commissioner Title, can you describe some of the challenges that you've seen in the Massachusetts cannabis space when it comes to engendering an equitable market structure or equity through regulations and lawmaking? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've faced every possible challenge you could face from, you know, baked in racism, inequity, um, access to capital that is already very difficult for you if you're a person of color or a woman. Um, everything that comes with the drug war um, and having a conviction and all the stigma with being um, involved with cannabis on top of that. So there's a lot. Um, I think that we have actually gotten to a place after two and a half years where we're starting to see some real progress. I, I don't know what's going to happen to that progress now. You know, you just have to take it one day at a time. But before the pandemic, um, a really important thing that happened was Chairman Hoffman and Executive Director Sean Collins wrote a letter to the legislature, which is very unusual for them. Um, neither, of that have ever, neither, neither of them have ever done that before. And they asked for three things. Um, one, to codify the social equity program. Um, and I'll let Representative Tyler talk about her um, bills. Uh, but that's the one thing that was already in a bill to um, create a loan or grant fund for these applicants who otherwise can't access capital, um, which since the, in the time that we've been talking about it, another state, Illinois, has actually done it. So we now have a model and it's now more um, real and approachable. And then third, and to me most importantly, making sure that cities and towns have to be equitable in some way, the same way that the state does. Now, the law doesn't require the commission to be equitable in any particular way. We've just figured it out through a lot of different measures. And I think we should do the same thing with cities or towns where they could choose to, you know, give host community agreements to veteran owned businesses, or they could choose to do what Boston has done and give half of their um, half of their local selection going to their definition of equity applicants and so on, but that has been the biggest barrier for me is you have a business, you're trying to get them through the process 
and they can't get through um, the city or town. So that's been the biggest, that's what I tell other states, please make sure you're looking at. Um, and then access to capital is of course a really obvious one. And then last but not least, the technical assistance that it takes to just learn how to run a business. And I think our equity program has been fantastic at that. And there's also a lot of private programs that have been great and cultivated is one of them that the representative has worked on. So I think we've gotten to a place where we know what the issues are and we, I think, even know how to address them. Rep. Tyler, please, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, I think uh, the commissioner hit it on the money. Um, so not only does, you know, districts like mine what are, who are predominantly um, Black and Latino districts have issues with, you know, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress. Also, we have issues around um, access to capital. Um, and so I was very, very bummed a couple of weeks ago when we actually was celebrated three weeks ago, um, the first um, social equity license here in Boston, right in Grove Hall, which is the center of, of our community in Boston. Um, the first social equity license at Pure Oasis uh, store, shout out to Kobe. Um, and unfortunately, the next week he had to shut down. So again, trying to do whatever we can to be able to uplift folks that may not otherwise have the opportunity to have access to the access to the capital to, you know, to literally get into this race because it's not only having access to capital, you have to check off all those other check boxes and actually get to the finish line. And that's a very, very difficult process. So if anyone has the one guts to be able to stand up and say, hey, I want a license in any given community, I commend them. Um, but the two actually finish and get over the finish line and actually open up a storefront, like that's a big deal for me. So whatever we can to uplift um, any social equity license, um, I'm all for it. And one insight there that I really think is so crucial for those who follow this industry closely is that the municipal process is beyond broken. Now, there have been steps taken to remedy some of the bigger issues. And these uh, issues were, of course, directly impacting the ability for equity to be present in the licensing process and for folks who might not be aware of the structure of the application process, on the state level, like Commissioner Title had referenced, there are priority programs for economic empowerment and social equity program participants, along with some other business types, but I'm gonna focus on those two for now. But that priority on the state level is dependent on getting through the local application process in the city or town where a company an equity applicant or a social equity uh, economic empowerment applicant is looking to open. Those towns and cities do not have equity programs. And although I won't ask either of you to comment on it because it's active litigation, when one city, Cambridge, tried to create a two-year priority period under, the, uh, under their application uh, zoning ordinance for economic empowerment applicants only, they were sued by a medical dispensary who did not feel that that priority period should have been able to exist unless it also included medical dispensaries. Now, that's, I think, a microcosm of why it's so important that these local cities and towns not only be allowed, but be mandated to create equity in their licensing process, as otherwise the state level equity is rendered inert. So I'm wondering, uh, as a bit of a follow-up on what we were just talking about there, what would either of you like to see the state do 
in terms of creating those municipal equity processes in a way that balances the kind of control we'd like to see those towns and cities have with the kind of equity structure that they're not creating right now? Um, I'll take that first. So I think it's as simple as just almost copying and pasting what the state has to do because the state has to encourage, and by the state, I mean the regulating agency, the Cannabis Control Commission, has to uh, develop policies and procedures to ensure that communities disproportionately harmed by prohibition are included in the industry and to positively impact those communities. And the commission is also charged with making sure that um, women, people of color, and veterans are included as well. Um, and we've gone a bit further um, on our own volition to include people with disabilities and the LGBTQ community as well. But all of our priority programs, equity programs, um, exclusivity, which is extremely important, exclusivity says that um, delivery licenses and social consumption licenses when available will initially be only for certain groups for the first two years. All of that has come from those mandates. And so I think if cities and towns had the exact same mandates, it would be simple, it would be straightforward, and most importantly, it would give them the flexibility that they need because it's a fair argument to say, you know, Boston's completely different from, you know, a tiny company, a tiny uh, town, you know, in Western Massachusetts, they shouldn't have the same um, obligations put on them. But if that obligation is just to do something equitable, I think that's fair. Rep Tyler? Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with the commissioner. Um, I think that, you know, what Boston has done um, with creating kind of an advisory board, um, similar to what we have on a state level, that was a, a great idea. So that way, you know, we have more voices, you know, contributed to solutions that we can, you know, that we that everyone here in, in Massachusetts would like to see. So if they can follow that method, I think that that would be a pretty good um, and smooth way of actually getting the job done. So. Well, thank you both very much. Um, I have um, some more questions, but I wanted to take a second to recognize uh, some of the commenters because we have more comments on this episode than any episode that I've ever watched of The Young Jerks. So I cannot possibly get to them all, but because um, we're talking specifically um, about these issues in cities and towns, I'd like to talk a little bit about a comment that someone had left about Boston. And in particular, um, this is a comment from Chauncey Spencer, who was the first uh, economic empowerment applicant to apply in Boston. His comment is thus. The Boston City Council is not letting applicants move forward to have their HCAs reviewed by the Boston Cannabis Board. Since so many of us seem to be advocating for recreational to open, is it possible for there to be advocacy directed at cities and towns to open up the initial process for black applicants who have been prosecuted for cannabis? So if anyone wants to uh, reply to that, I'll just leave that out there as a statement. I would say um, to whoever that individual is, Mr. Chauncey, thank you so much for asking the question. Reach out to me directly and we can figure out how we can try to address the issue topic. Because again, what I've learned in my short time of being in government that all answers and all 
all concerns can be addressed if you just kind of work through it. So why it may seem difficult from the outside looking in, you have people like me who are more than happy to, you know, to elevate your voice and kind of speak on your behalf and try to figure out if we can get a solution. So reach out to me directly um, and I'm happy to engage in a further discussion on that issue topic. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm sure Chauncey heard that and will take advantage of that. Um, Chauncey is someone who has been on the program previously, uh, as has Kobe. Um, so uh, as the program, we support all equity applicants. Um, and Chauncey in particular, is, his story is just so heartbreaking because he is almost at the point of being rendered fiscally destitute by having to pay for his rent while being in the queue. And so every time I talk to him, I, I can see his story as what could happen if we all don't take more steps to protect small local businesses in particular from minority communities, because if we don't, the market will end up dominated by only those who end up with access to substantial amounts of capital, which does no one any good. So um, it's changing gears a little bit. I have a question that's a little more general about the work that both of you do. Um, so it's a question to both of you and uh, answer as you wish. Um, what are the things about your jobs as a cannabis control commissioner or state representative that make you passionate to get up every day and do the work that you do? Either or. You're both too polite to each other. Okay, go ahead. You can start, Commissioner. Um, what are the things that make us passionate to get up every day and do the work that we do? Um, uh, honestly, the power that I have. I mean, I don't think I'll ever have this kind of power anymore. Um, and after after my after I leave this position, and I'm not interested in personally benefiting myself. I could have sold out a long time ago if I wanted to. Just the idea that I can use this position in a time when there's no handbook, there's no status quo, there's no um, people, there's no people who are, feel entitled, you know, to what they have in the way that in a lot of other industries you have people who feel entitled. We can come up with the policies that we want to. Our biggest problem is that it's challenging to execute equity, but. The fact that we have a state that has bought into the idea of fairness and equity for people who have historically been discriminated against is huge. And the fact that we were the first state to have that. And now not only do we have that in every state that considers legalization, it was a big topic, continues to be a big topic at the federal level as well. And everyone continues to look at us to see how we are doing it. And so that is challenging, but the ability to be innovative and address that with so many people who support it and the communities that would benefit from these policies are ready to go. They're engaged. They are taking advantage of every benefit that we give them. They're coming to the programs. And that is probably the most motivating thing is like every little step that we've done has been recognized and taken full advantage of. And it just makes you want to do it more. Well, that's wonderful. And Rep. Tyler, before we go to you, I'll just take a second to uh, do a little uh, station ID break here, which is to say I'm Grant Smith-Ellis, and I'm here with Representatives China Tyler 
and Cannabis Control Commissioner Shaleen Title, and we are enjoying a very uh, interesting and fun discussion about local politics, local cannabis. You're watching The Young Jerks. Uh, for those of you who watch the show, you'll know that uh, you can find us uh, live every week at, on Sunday at 5 p.m. However, with our new switch to our virtual format, we're starting to air episodes on different days of the week, including special episodes like our episode tonight. And all of these episodes can be found uh, on our uh, podcast platforms after they air, which uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or anywhere else where your podcasts are found. And uh, we're under the Young Jerks. You can also read our content on midnightmass.substack.com. And uh, both myself and Mike Crawford also publish articles from time to time in Dig Boston. With that said, we'll now rejoin the discussion. Uh, I was about to ask Representative Tyler what it is about her job and uh, the day-to-day -day work that she does in the Massachusetts State House that makes her passionate to get up every day. That's a good question. This is always my favorite question to answer because my constituents know um, and the people of the city of Boston know how much I love them so much. Um, I have some really, really passionate um, and inspirational constituents. I mean, they've got content expertise on any given issue topic you can think of, particularly around the issue topic of the cannabis industry. And so to be able to feel like I'm doing work as a collective effort with my constituents to be able to then provide solutions to issue topics that they felt for a very long time have just been kind of null and void, um, not addressed or just kind of right now on fire um, for some issue topics. It's a true honor to be able to do so. So that's kind of what brings me to work every day, gets me up in the morning, um, is, the, is, the, is the passion and, and the drive behind my constituents. They have really kind of elevated me as a rep and I hope to continue to serve them um, moving forward in the legislature. Well, that kind of reflective political legitimacy is inspiring on multiple levels because it really is the case that an informed polity makes better policy for everyone, but makes it harder for the corrupt to accomplish their goals. So to see folks like yourself who view the dynamic and the relationship between a lawmaker and a constituent as one of empowerment is something that I think is, is so special and it's wonderful to see you serving in that position and upholding those ideals. Nice, thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to answer. Um, and I, I know we, we're gonna go about an hour. I have a few more questions. Uh, I don't wanna keep you though, both of you. Would you mind uh, answering a few more questions for a few minutes? No problem. Oh, that would be wonderful. And we have so many viewers that, uh, that are really enjoying this. So uh, I had a feeling this episode would be popular. I didn't know it would be this popular. So I'm glad we'll, We'll be able to give a little bit of uh, free air time, so to speak, to, to those viewers. So, Although it's free anyway, but you know. <laughs> All right. So um, moving on to the next uh, question I had here. Uh, Commissioner Title, it's actually for you. But uh, again, as always, uh, Rep. Tyler, please feel free to weigh in as, as you want. Um, so Commissioner Title, what initially, going back in your history, sparked your interest in using regulatory oversight to bring about equity in the cannabis industry? And why is that structure, like we've been talking about, so important as a model for other states to look to as they begin to develop their respective legal cannabis markets? Oh, this will be a short answer because um, I didn't have any interest in it at all. I was <laughs> completely unexpectedly put in this position. Um, 
So Chanel Lindsay and I were on the uh, writing committee for the referendum in 2016. And we wrote that section I quoted earlier about mandating um, equity and inclusion. And so she and I were lobbying to make sure that the people on the commission would come from those communities and to make sure that we would have a diverse commission. Um, and then after that, I was invited to apply. And I think when you're invited to apply to something like that, you know, you have to take it, I think. So um, let me say to you, if you are thinking, if you have never thought about being a regulator before, there is going to be a vacant seat very soon, <laughs> excuse me. So I would encourage um, everyone who's watching to think about applying. Absolutely. And Rep. Tyler, uh, yourself, uh, you know, your, your general interest in, in using the powers of, of lawmaking and statutory interpretation to engender equity? Yeah, I mean, I definitely would just uh, say the commissioner hit it on the money. But again, just like she said, if you don't apply, then you won't know if you're, gonna, if you're in the game or not. So if you're interested, apply, um, and then all else will take place from there. So, yeah. Well, that is wonderful. And I think it's an important message that so many folks sometimes overthink what it is to get involved in politics or regulation. And it really sometimes could be as simple as, as throwing your hat in the ring, building the right friendships, and all of a sudden you're now in the middle of an important topic. And not just an important topic as it gets discussed, but as the lawmaking and the regulations regarding that topic are written. And then before you know it, you've changed the world. And so it really is as simple as that sometimes, if only. Yeah. Um, very good, very good. Um, so the next question, again, a little bit of a change of gears. Um, it's about deverticalization of the medical cannabis market. And it involves a bill on Beacon Hill. So I think uh, both of you um, will enjoy the opportunity to weigh in here. Um, so the bill uh, in question in the House is H3539, and in the Senate, it's S1128. And for those unfamiliar with the context, basically, currently, all medical cannabis operators have to be vertically integrated in Massachusetts, which is to say they have to manufacture, cultivate, and, uh, cultivate manufacture, and retail their cannabis all under the same license. And as a result, there's a very high barrier to entry for folks seeking to get into that uh, industry. So uh, that structure, coupled with a lack of equity programs for medical cannabis licensing dating back to when the medical law passed, there's basically nearly insurmountable barriers to entry to the medical market for equity applicants and smaller applicants in general right now. Now, those bills I was talking about, uh, 3539 in the House and 1128 in the Senate, would break down the medical licensing into three distinct license types. Uh, I'm actually advocating for a fourth. The three in the bill right now are cultivation, manufacturer, processor, and retail. So the fourth category I'm trying to add is a form of standalone delivery that looks a lot like micro-business uh, delivery uh, endorsements for rec for adult use. In any event, my question is actually not about the categories, but instead about the equity. So what is it that the lawmakers could do as these bills are being discussed? Uh, H3539 just passed favorably out of the Cannabis Policy Committee uh, a, few week, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point. What is it that lawmakers can do when thinking about how to amend or even implement that bill to bring about some equity programs in the licensing of medical cannabis operators? Um, 
Okay, I'll go first. So I, I support that bill completely. I think it came up maybe the last time I was on this show or some other show, and um, you asked me if I would support it, and I said yes. Um, I have some news, I think, for you that I learned last week, which was news to me. So I was talking to Commissioner Doyle, and as I've mentioned before, Commissioner Doyle is very good at regulatory solutions. She came up with the, she and Sean came up with the amended season disorder season desist order um, supply chain change last week. They're very good at that sort of tweak. So we were talking about this issue. She thinks that um, we can address it through regulation. Um, and in particular, that it might make sense to use the endorsement system. So if you followed the delivery discussion, we had delivery licenses and then we wanted to find a way for social equity and economic empowerment applicants who have micro businesses to be able to deliver as well. And so we call it a delivery endorsement where you'll be able to manu cultivate, manufacture, and then deliver your product. And so what she's considering, and she told me that she had been public about this, so I'm happy to share it here. What she's considering is a endorsement where um, if you, are a medical establishment you can do different things under endorsement so look for that in our upcoming um regulatory change that um, we've announced the schedule for already um but in the meantime always good to, to advocate for both the bill and the regulation and if we get both great Oh, that's really wonderful. And so um, that very well could result in, say, a medical license where the person uh, applies just to be a cultivator and then is able to apply for an endorsement to deliver their cultivated medical products, potentially. Potentially, yeah, or anything in the supply chain, cultivate, manufacture, retail. Um, now, note, this is a preliminary idea, so I, I can't say at all what it would look like. It's just an idea, but follow along in the process. We will announce it, we'll have a draft, we'll have hearings, and then it'll become final, whatever it is. Rep Tyler? Yeah, um, so I actually wanna talk about a couple of different things when it, when it comes to this issue topic. One, I think that from, from what I remember in drafting the bill, I think that this issue of like the deverticalization of uh, the industry, I think it may have been addressed, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the original bill. So I would definitely encourage folks to read uh, the original bill because I'm almost certain that that issue topic was addressed there, um, I believe. Um, but uh, number two would be, you know, I definitely respect my colleagues and respect the legislative process. So if folks have questions, comments, or concerns, this is, you know, I, we say this a lot, but it's very, very important that you reach out to your legislature because if they're not hearing from you, they're thinking that maybe my maybe my community or my district doesn't have an opinion on this whatever issue topic we're discussing and a lot of the times they don't hear from people so they don't really you know chime in or um or take the floor when the issue topic comes to play when in actuality you have a huge constituency that is concerned about an issue topic and i know that there are a lot of folks out there that reach out to me um in particular around this issue topic so definitely reach out to your to your legislator and let them know your senator or your rep let them know how you feel about this issue topic um and number three i just want to just kind of point out that there's a difference between um you know state policy and regulations 
Um, and so as far as a commissioner is concerned and her role as a commissioner, um, she has a little bit more flexibility to make things happen a little bit more quickly um, than we do on a, on a legislature level. Um, and so if you're concerned about this issue topic, I would definitely say reach out to her and her colleagues and empower them and uplift them and share information that can help them get to a solution because the legislative process takes a little bit longer to be able to kind of see things through um, as folks know. So I just want to hit on those three things. Well, that's actually wonderful because it segues directly into my next question, which is about the role of regulators in the context of our tripartite system of government. So <laughs> thank you very much for that. And uh, that is wonderful. So Commissioner Title, uh, how would you describe the role of a cannabis regulator within that, con within that system of tripartite uh, government, which is to say an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch? Do you find yourself keeping abreast of cannabis policy changes within the legislative and judicial branches or the executive branch? And how does that, how do those machinations inform your approach to your day-to-day -day work at the commission? Yeah, so I follow them very closely and um, I might be really bad at that. I might just cross lines all the time, frankly, because I'm an activist at heart and I am much more interested in accomplishing things concretely, you know, than I am into like, what role is this and what role is that? But definitely, I think that's really important that regulators, of course, are um, not just important, it's our job to make sure that we're following the law, to make sure that we are being fair and to make sure that we are being transparent to all of our stakeholders. So I, I certainly focus on all of those things and then I try to be, I try not to just, you know, be nearsighted though as to what regulators do. I want to make sure that um, everyone else that has a role to play knows that they can talk to us, they're informed, and that, you know, we can react if they, if they, and I've had a lot of legislators contact me when they hear from their constituents and, um, you know, they think we should take something into account or we should do something differently. And it's been extremely helpful. I think it's a really good thing for all the different of levels of government to be in contact with each other. Wonderful. Um, Rep. Tyler, I know you kind of segued us in, but anything you want to add about the role of a cannabis regulator from your perspective as a lawmaker? No, that was it. That was it. She, she is. Commissioner Title is quite comprehensive, I, I yeah, tend to find. Well, uh, I'm Grant Smith-Ellis. I'm with the Young Jerks, and uh, we've been having an awesome uh, episode this evening with uh, Commissioner Cannabis Control Commissioner Shalene Title, Mass State Rep China Tyler. Um, we'll take one more dive into the comments here uh, to pull out something to uh, ask our guests. Then I have one final question, and then we'll wrap up. So really, time flies by when you're having so much fun. So thanks to you both and to all the listeners. Um, so. Uh, one comment I'm seeing here is that uh, Nathan Andre from Between the Rows, which is an equity applicant, notes that they also have been two years uh, into the process with no pathways. Um, so uh, I'm just mentioning their name. Uh, so to folks who might not know about Between the Rows, uh, they're an equity applicant themselves. And um, I'm mentioning them now because they're friends of the show. They do excellent work. And uh, anyone who is hearing this, might be able to provide them some pathways or assistance, please reach out to Between the Rows. Um, another comment I'm seeing here is from uh, Andrew Muddy, who is from Beantown Greentown. And he says, we wanna know about event licensing. 
So I think he's talking about one and three day event licensing, which the commission has been talking about for a year or so, Commissioner Title. So perhaps you might be able to weigh in there. Yeah, well, we are waiting um, for a fix. Uh, and I won't put Representative Tyler uh, on the spot. I'll just speak generally um, that we have asked the legislature. And when I say we, I mean the social consumption working group, which was made up of me and Chairman Hoffman and several uh, municipal officials that are interested in social consumption, um, had asked the legislature to make a fix because right now uh, cities and towns can't opt into social consumption the way that the law is written. Um, that memo that I'm talking about that explains all of this is online. So long story short, we wrote the regulations for a brick and mortar social consumption establishment and passed them. And we have not been able to implement them because we are waiting on that legislative fix to be able to. So um, I don't think it would necessarily be a good use of our time right now to go through the whole process again with event licensing until we know that it's something that can that can happen. Um, but I, I would say that event licensing in the time that it's been since we first were talking about it in 2017 is something that has happened a lot in other states now. So in California in particular, they have a really robust um, social consumption system and they have the events going on all the time. I think that's really helpful when you have a model that um, you can look to. So um, I encourage people to contact Look at the memo um, that I'm talking about and then contact your legislator and your um, local elected official and tell them that you want to see social consumption events. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rep. Tyler, you can weigh in if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, if majority of the folks in Commonwealth wanted um, the wanted marijuana, wanted cannabis to be legal here, I mean, we have to do what we can to support all the other asks that are kind of kind of kind of trickle down from that you know essential question um and as far as the social consumption sites um if again if folks are advocating for it i'm happy to be able to explore it but what i will say is that um as long as we keep safety first um and and doing anything that you know that's innovative when it comes to the industry i'm all about it so happy to explore it for sure the safety first very true, and um, one of the uh, seats on the Cannabis Control Commission is, is dedicated to public safety, so certainly an important component of the regulatory structure, uh, without question. Um, so last question before we do our wrap-up is uh, to, to both of you, I guess Rep. Tyler can go first, then we'll go to Rep. Title, uh, Commissioner Title. Um, what are some of the best ways for members of the grassroots cannabis community to effectively lobby lawmakers and regulators for policies they feel to be of importance in Massachusetts? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. So again, reaching out and sharing your story. Again, you'd be surprised how many times you know, I learned for the first time that X is happening or that there's an issue topic out there. Um, and all it really took was one of my constituents to see me on the street and stop me or email me or schedule a meeting with me or call me on the phone and said, hey, I just wanted to share with you, you know, about this issue topic. And at the end of the day, we're regular people, we're normal people, we have lives, we have kids, we got everything going on. Um, and education is super, super important. And it's the only way that we're going to be able to get to any solution whether you be a lawmaker, a commissioner, a radio show host, or what have you. So please reach out to us um, 
all your electeds or any other advocates and just make sure that you're informing the community abroad um, through education and making sure they know the facts. So once, once we can get the facts down, then we can start moving towards a solution. So factual information is super important and keep educating us. And we will keep educating you and trying to be transparent as possible to get as many solutions as we can possibly uh, get down in the book. So education and sharing information, factual information. <laughs> Wonderful. Commissioner Title. Um, Representative Tyler is completely right. Um, recognizing that whoever you're trying to lobby is a human being that you can contact, you can bring something to their attention. You have to do it in a way where um, you are respecting their time and leading with the most important information that you think they should know. And you yourself should be informed before you contact them. You don't have to know everything about the policy, but everything that you say, you should you should have researched and understood, even if it's your own story, which is totally fine. Um, and independent media is extremely important. I think that the work that you do, Grant, um, has had a really concrete, measurable impact in the way that people have lobbied the commission. I've watched it happen. I've watched the progress that we've made because um, you've made such an effective case. So the power of numbers is really important. Um, I would say the most practical tip I can give is whether it's your city council or the commission or your legislator, get together a group of people who have never called before um, and have them call on the phone, not email, not social media, have them call on the phone and say in their own words, whatever it is that you're looking for. And if you have five or 10 people do that, that can be the most important thing that happens in that office that day. It'll definitely get attention. And also too, what I want to add on to that is that, you know, it's really simple. The more voices that we have to put towards an issue topic, the better or the more fruitful um, the policy that we put out is. So the more voices, the merrier. So please reach out to us. I love, I love hearing from people. I learn something new almost every day. So. Um, please reach out. It's really such, such an important lesson because it's fundamentally true that lawmakers may hear a speech or read an op-ed, but when people start calling, they start noticing. And the grassroots has a remarkable ability to coalesce as if a school of fish around it prey and attack an issue and move on. And lawmakers and regulators, as you're hearing firsthand today, notice, take heed, and adapt to those moments. And it's very inspirational to hear from the other side in some sense, because I think there is an element of mystification that some people view lawmaking and regulation uh, with. And demystifying that process and bringing it to an accessible format is what gives us a legitimate structure for our government. Informed public discourse is the enabling condition of legitimate liberal democracies. And what we've seen on display here today is two public officials, a cannabis control commissioner in Chalene Title and a Massachusetts state rep in China Tyler, who value that recursive legitimacy as the enabling condition of our entire democratic system. And so I hope that everyone listening has been as inspired as I have been 
as a participant in this discussion because this is what legitimate legitimate lawmaking and regulatory oversight looks like. And now that folks have been able to see this, I hope it will serve as a litmus test when comparing the outlook, the ideological ethos of these two wonderful public officials with other public officials who you may hear giving interviews. So I really cannot thank both of you enough for what turned into an exercise in investigating what it is that makes this local cannabis community and lawmaking community so special. So thank you both very much. And for, for those who have been watching, this is The Young Jerks. Uh, we go live on our Facebook page. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, or any of the other podcasts where any of the other podcast platforms where your podcasts are found. My name is Grant Smith Ellis. I've been here with Cannabis Control Commissioner Shaleen Title and State Rep China Tyler for one of my favorite interviews as a host of The Young Jerks. Hi, it's Mike Crawford of The Young Jerks. I want to thank you for listening, subscribing to The Young Jerks podcast, and also recommend that if you would like to support us with a financial contribution, that you do so through the Anchor app or through midnightmass.substack.com, become a paying subscriber. Or if you'd like to just send us a donation, you could do so through Venmo. It's Mike Crawford, TYJ on Venmo. Thank you very much. And uh, also, if you could rate and review us on iTunes, it is much appreciated. Thank you.